Let me invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 4 this morning in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 4. Have you ever wondered why Christ came to the earth when He did? I mean, why didn't Christ come immediately after Adam sinned? Right? There's a promise there in Genesis 3.15 that Eve, one of your seeds will crush the, the head of the serpent. So why couldn't that first seed of hers, that first descendant, be Christ? Why couldn't He just die right away? I think the history of the world needed to unfold before Christ was ready to come in the plan of God. There were a couple things that needed to happen. One is we needed to, as a human race, needed to see the true and ugly nature of sin. We needed to have sin show its ugly head. And secondly, we needed to see that we couldn't provide the answer to our own sin. And from the time of Genesis 3 till the time of Matthew 1, do you think we saw those two things? Did we see the ugly nature of sin and that we can't have an answer for our own sin? If you you want to see the ugly nature of sin, read through the book of Judges. We have been reading through that in our Bible reading. Just finished it up this past week. And you saw the ugly nature of sin. You want to see that we as mankind cannot have the answer to our own sin? Then read through the Chronicles and the Kings and and the books of Samuel and the prophets. And you see that that our sin is ugly and we don't have an answer for it. And that's in fact what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, that the law came to actually highlight that, to highlight the ugliness of sin, to show us that we are sinners, that we can't meet up to the law. We need someone else to do it, that we have to wait until the seed comes, the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ. And in this passage this morning, we're going to that we're going to consider, we're going to see that Christ came at the perfect time in history. And that His coming and our receiving Him through faith resulted in the greatest possible relationship that we can have with God. And that is our adoption. And I hope that you see the great beauty of this truth this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Our adoption through Christ. Our adoption into God's family. Let me read verses 1 through 7 of Galatians chapter 4. This is the Word of God. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. Because of Christ, we were transferred from being a slave to being a son, or from being a, a servant of our, our own righteousness to a child of, of God. Now remember last week we saw that before faith in Christ came, the Jews were held in custody to the law. Remember chapter 3, verses 23? And then Paul used two images to try to portray the weight of the law. One was imprisonment, that we are held in custody under the law. And then the second was that, that the law was there to be our tutor, which I explained to be as like a nanny or a, or a governess, someone who would watch over us and, and restrict us and discipline us until the right time came to we became mature. And so the reason that the law of Moses was there for all those centuries was to be our governess or our nanny, or as Paul will call it here, a guardian or a manager. During that time, it wasn't pleasant for Israel. It wasn't something that, that you would wish on a person. But it was necessary in order for God's people to mature and all of the human race really to mature to a place where they would be able to receive Christ and appreciate the reception of Christ. And so those two pictures of Israel, a slave and a child, that is a slave imprisoned and then a child, an immature child who needs somebody to watch over them. Those two pictures are now brought and, and really translated into one in chapter 4. And Paul shows that they're very similar. He's saying that to be a slave imprisoned is very similar to being an immature son. And he's going to show us that. So really he's continuing the imagery that he used at the end of chapter 3 now bringing it forward into chapter 4. So, verses 1 and 2, we see the illustration. Let me just break down the whole passage so you see where we're going. Okay, First of all, we're going to see our life before our adoption, verses 1 through 3. And then we're going to see the means of our adoption in verse 4 and the first part of verse 5. And then we're going to see the benefits of our adoption, the end of verse 5 through verse 7. Okay, so life before our adoption, the way we get our adoption, the means, and then, and then the benefits of our adoption. Okay, so first, life before our adoption. Before we were adopted into God's family, we were slaves. That's what verses 1 through 3 talk about. And so Paul gives an illustration of an enslaved son. Notice verse 1, now, as long as the, now I say as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. So do you see how he's equating the two? They're not any different. And now, what does he mean when he says child? Well, the word translated here for child is used 14 other times in the Greek New Testament. And nearly every time that it's used, the English translators use the word infant. And the only time that it's used as child is in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. Let me read a portion of that verse for you. 1 Thessalonians 2.7 uses the same Greek word, and they call it a child or children. A nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Okay, so what I'm trying to show you is that every time this word is used in the New Testament, it always means infant children. And that's Paul's point. Paul's using the word child to refer to immaturity or incompetency. They don't have the power, the, the ability to become independent. And so we have an 
immature child, but notice in verse 1 that he is an heir. Okay, He has special privileges. He's an heir and owner of everything, the end of the verse says, right? But really, he's not the owner of everything in the sense that he doesn't have access to all of that. Okay, Think about a child who is born into a rich family. He is what's known, what we would call an heir apparent. Right? He doesn't have access to all of his inheritance right now. But once he becomes of age or whatever time the father decides, he will be able to receive that inheritance and begin to use that. And until that time, the money would be, let's say, in that same family that the father dies, well, he would entrust a guardian over that money until the time when the child would be old enough. You, you perhaps did this with your own children. You knew that if you died before they became of age, became an age of maturity, they would use all the money that you left for them on what? Lots of wasteful things, right? And that's what the guardian does. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. And and his point here is now he's going to show why he's using this illustration in verse 3. He's going to show that that's what the law did. The law was like that guardian who was guarding over the infant, the immature child, until the time when he was mature enough to receive the inheritance. And so in that way, Paul's saying, the infant child, the immature child, is no different from a slave. Why? Because he's really he doesn't have any rights as a child. He can't do anything with, with that inheritance. And so here's the application in verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Okay, so Paul first gives the illustration of an immature son, and now he points it over to Israel. This is you, Israel. This is the way we were. That's why he uses the word we. I think he's referring to Jews there. That we were held under guardians and managers. What what did I say the guardians and managers were? It was actually the law of Moses that was over Israel and protecting them until the time when they would come under uh, come of age. And uh, what exactly held these Jews under bondage? The end of verse 3 gives us the answer. It is the elemental things of the world. The elemental things of the world. And this is why I say Paul is referring here to the law of Moses. He's pointing back to what he was talking about in chapter 3. He's saying that the law of Moses really was elementary. It was it was it was menial compared to what you're going to receive in Christ. Remember, the law of Moses couldn't save a person, right? It it wasn't valuable in that way. Look at chapter three, verse twenty one. I'll show you. Chapter three, verse twenty one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. Okay, The point is is that the law was not able to impart life. That was his point. It can't impart life. So the law of Moses was really there just to point people to the future seed that was promised to Abraham. It It was designed to to show them their sin and their need for someone to satisfy the demands. And this completely runs counter to the Jewish opponents 
who were teaching the Galatian churches that in order to improve upon this gospel, a person had to advance to a okay, you've got to advance from the the covenant with Abraham to a master's level education, which would be the law of Moses. If you really get it and you really are able to obey all those things, then you will have improved upon the gospel. But Paul's saying, no. They are, look at the end of verse 3 again, chapter 4, they are elemental things or elementary things. Those are weak. That's not master's level high education, the law of Moses. It's small stuff. So what you need to do, Galatians, is advance from your slavery to that to freedom in Christ. Because the Gospel is not about obeying commands. The Gospel is not about do's and don'ts. The Gospel is about a relationship that God is allowing you to have with God through His death. That's what we're going to see today. The Gospel is about adoption. Adopting us into God's family. And we saw this last time, that one of the benefits of our relationship with Christ is our adoption. Look at verse 25 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all adopted through faith in Christ Jesus. What was the means of our adoption? There in verse 26 it says it was through our faith. But through our faith in what? The answer comes in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Paul first shows our life before adoption. It was slavery. We needed to move out of that. But Christ freed us from that. We're going to see the benefits of it here at the end of this passage. But now we need to see how that came about. And it comes about through Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5. First thing that we see about this means of adoptions that had to be done at the perfect time, verse 4. had to be done at the perfect time. When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son. That is, when God's plan came to a culmination, that's when He sent Christ to the earth. Now, when a woman is pregnant, she is given a due date. gives her a rough estimate of a day in which she's expecting the baby to be born. And of course, God already knows that date in which that baby will be born. When it comes to the birth of Jesus, the Scriptures call it the fullness of time. That is, the culmination of all of God's plans from eternity past comes to fruition. And God knew that date when Jesus would come into the earth. He knew exactly the perfect time, the fullness of time, where life would be provided through His Son. And, and again, those reasons why Jesus had to wait were because of we needed to see our sin as a human race and we needed to see that we couldn't pay for our sins. And at that time, that's when Jesus came. So it had to be done at the perfect time. That is the means of our adoption. The second thing we need to see in verses 4 and 5 is that it had to be done by God Himself. Notice, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth. His son. It had to be done 
by God Himself. That is, God had to do the sending and God had to be the one to satisfy the laws. Now, when I say God the first time, I'm talking about God the Father. When I say it the second time, I'm talking about God the Son. That God the Son had to satisfy all of the law's demands. We see that at the end of the verse. Born under the law, so that, verse 5, He might redeem those who were under the law. In other words, the only way we could be redeemed, bought out of this slavery to the law, is if someone came and obeyed the law perfectly. And that can be done by just an ordinary fallen human being, can it? It had to be done by God Himself. And so we see that this person, whoever it was, who came to, to, to adopt us into God's family had to be God Himself. And He also had to be human. Notice verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Born of a woman. He had to be human. Why? The reason that Christ had to become man was because as God, He is spirit. And He doesn't die. Spirits don't die. And so we needed a human so Christ had to come to take on lowly, humble human flesh so that He could offer up His body in death. So He had to be God so that He could obey the whole law and He had to be man so that He could die for us. And then the end of verse 4 tells us that He had to satisfy the demands of the law. That He was born under the law so that He could fully obey God and so that God could impute Christ's righteousness to our account. So that even though we are deserving of damnation, we pass our penalty, we impute our, or God imputes our penalty to Jesus Christ when He, when Christ paid for it on the cross. And, and God imputes, that is, he, he charges to our account Christ's righteousness, His perfect obedience of the law to our account. So that in God's eyes, we are perfectly righteous even though we are condemned sinners. And so that's exactly what happened. When God saved us through Christ, we now were treated as children, as sons, adopted. And so now we want to look at the end of verse 5 through verse 7 at the benefits of our adoption. The benefits of our adoption. What's so special about being adopted into God's family? And there are two there are two main benefits that we see in these verses. Number one, there is an assurance of God's love. An assurance of God's love. And number two, a full inheritance. Full inheritance. So first, assurance of God's love. Second part of verse five through verse six. It says that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We receive assurance of God's love. The first thing we should notice in these verses is that Paul changes from the first person plural, we, to the second person plural, you. You see that in verse 3? He says, so also we, while we were children, were held under bondage. He's talking about the Jews, I believe, there. But then in verse 6, he says, because you are sons. Okay, so that you as Gentile believers, remember the churches in Galatia were made up primarily of Gentiles, but also some Jews. He's saying, but now you've received this adoption. 
through Jesus Christ. It's not because of your obedience to the law of Moses. And this is important because Paul is trying to help assure the believers there in the Galatian churches of their relationship with God. That you are not a second-rate child in God's family just because you're not a Jew or you haven't taken on the Jewish customs. But you receive the full rights of adoption. I want you to be assured of that, Paul is saying. Think of a family, uh, if you can, with a biological with a biological child and an adopted child in the same family. You got one in mind? Does the adopted child feel more loved, equally loved, or less loved in the family you're thinking? Are they treated differently? And the answer to that question is going to be based on the family that you're thinking about. Okay, the family that I'm thinking about is um, my wife's Aunt Kay, the one who we've been praying for, and her husband Gary. They adopted a son named Rob. And then within, I think, a year or two, gave birth to a biological son, Jim. And while I've never lived in that home, since the time that I've known them, I've never seen any indication of a difference between the way that they treat Rob and the way they treat Jim, the adopted son and the biological son. They treat them similarly. They, they love them the same. But, but your answer may have been, well, that adopted child actually in the family I'm thinking of was probably less loved. And that's probably because the way that those parents treated them was, was a little bit, uh, was with some favoritism. But a good parent will make sure that the adopted child feels just as loved as the biological child, right? And that's the kind of parent we have in God. You see, God wants you to know that He loves you. He wants you to have no doubt about His love. And so what verse 6 tells us is something very important. He gives us something to help assure us of our love of His love for us. Look at what that is. Because you are sons, because you're adopted, God has done what? He sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now let me clarify that what God is talk- or what Paul is talking about here is not regeneration. He's not saying, the reason I... Uh, the, the, the way I'm showing you okay, that you are adopted is by regenerating you. Okay? Because if you were saying that, then regeneration, the impartation of spiritual life, that would follow adoption. Okay? So he's not talking about the Spirit coming and giving life. He's talking about something else. He's talking about, and that's why I call it an assurance that he gives us following our adoption. Notice at the beginning of the verse, because you are sons, So we've already been adopted into God's family. Now, when did I say that happens? When does adoption happen? Look at chapter 3, verse 26 again. For you are all sons of God, how? Through faith. So if we want to put this on a timeline, and a lot of these things happen almost instantaneously and we don't even see them happening, but if we want to put it on a timeline, it would be faith, then adoption. Once we express faith in Jesus Christ, God adopts us into His family. 
And now what Paul's saying in chapter 4, verse 6, because you are sons, you're here, you're adopted, God sends His Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. Okay, so faith precedes adoption. And what precedes faith? Regeneration, right? Remember what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says? That you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, Romans 8 says that you did not have the ability to come to God and you didn't even have the desire to come to God, nor were you able to do so. You had no desire or ability to come to God. And so what that means is we can't express faith here. We can't confess with our mouths and believe in our heart here until we've already had a work done in us. Titus 3.5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. God had to impart life before we could have the faith, before we could be adopted, before we could have this in verse 6. Assurance of God's love. And this is what God gives to us. He gives us assurance of His love. So this giving of the Spirit is not regeneration, it is assurance. Now let me just talk about adoption here and and help you to see how important this is. When God adopts you into... When God adopts you, it means that He's making you a member of His family. Now that may not sound like a big deal to you. But think about what the other alternative is. We are either children of God or children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3. Or children of Satan. Remember John chapter 8, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Okay? You can either be a child of God or a child of His wrath, deserving of His condemnation and receiving it. And so, in that sense, we, we become adopted. We're, we're joined into God's family. That's why John chapter 1, verse 12 calls it a privilege or a right. His, he says, as many as received Him, faith, to them gave He the right or the privilege to be called the sons of God, to be adopted into His family. It's a great privilege to be a part of God's family. And it's really... It, it, it improves upon our, our justification, our right standing before God. Do you realize that there are other creatures in the universe that have a right standing before God, but they haven't been adopted into His family? Who are those creatures? The angels, right? They stand before God in a right standing. They're not going to be condemned. They've already been confirmed in their holiness. As far as I can tell from the Scriptures, they don't have a familial relationship with God. Now, the Old Testament calls them sons of God, but I think that has to do more with their relationship to Him as a creator rather than to Him as a family. But, but we have a special relationship with God that even the angels don't enjoy. And I think that's why Peter talks about, you know, when it comes to our salvation and being forgiven of sin, they long to look into these things. They, they, they want to see us and they want to see what God's doing in our life and the special love that He shows to us. And so this adoption is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you in this lifetime and the lifetime to come. So how do we know if we're adopted? How do we know? The second part of verse 6 tells us, Because you are sons, this is what God will have done in you. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. 
Now, there is a sense in, there is a sense in which our, our adoption is still future. Okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 23 talks about that, that we await for our adoption as sons. That there's some sort of future aspect to it. But what Paul, Paul is talking about here is a present aspect of our adoption. That we have this special relationship by having the Spirit of Christ within us. That's what it is. You know, We often talk about Jesus being in our heart. And technically that's not wrong, but, but remember, Jesus is a human. But the way that He's in our heart is found here in verse 6, through His Spirit. You see that? The Spirit of His Son resides in our heart. Not that Jesus, the eternal human, lives in our heart, but, but that is, His Spirit does. And this Spirit, this Holy Spirit, convinces us that we can call on God. It says that this Spirit cries out, Abba, Fathers, Abba, Father. He convinces us that we can do what He does. That the Spirit calls His Father, Abba, and we can do the same thing. That we can say, like Jesus prayed in Matthew chapter 6, Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is Your name. Notice the fervency of the Spirit's crying here. It's, or, or the calling here. It says that He actually cries out. That's the, the literal uh, rendering of the Greek word that he, he cries out. This is not a whisper. When Jesus was on the cross, the same word was used of Him when He said, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Is that how He said it? Remember what the, the, the Aramaic way of saying it was? It was, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And what did the people think he was saying there? Is he calling Elijah down to help him to get off of this cross? Let's just wait and see if Elijah comes. So that's why I know he's not just whispering these words on the cross, but he's crying them out to God so that all can hear. And this is what the Spirit does in our hearts to help assure us of God's love for us. That he cries out to God and he says, Abba, Father. What does this word Abba mean? There are many who translate this word as a word of, uh, of endearment that a small child would use. They translate it daddy. Um, but the, the word was actually used by more than just infants. That may be a helpful translation, but I think that, that word was used, I know, was used by more than just infants or, or toddlers, we could say. It was used by grown children when they would speak of their father and receiving their inheritance from him. It was a, a term really not to do so much with their infancy, but with their, as one commentator says, their intimacy, that they have a special relationship with him. And so they can cry out to him, Abba, Father. Think about the relationship that President Obama's daughters have with him. I mean, everyone who has manners calls him Mr. President or President Obama. But when the girls get home with Dad, they don't go up to him and say, can you play a game with me, Mr. President? Or do they, they don't go through another person and say, can you ask Mr. President if he will do something for me? They go up to him, they climb on his lap, and they say, Dad, can you do this for me? They have a special relationship with him, an intimate relationship that's closer than other people. And so what the Spirit is convincing us 
to do is something that is really shocking here. To call on the God of the universe, the Creator, the Great Judge, the Holy One, the High and Lifted Up One, the King of the universe, and say, that's my dad. That's my father. This is quite a bold statement, and we can only do this on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already done. So how do we know that God is our Father and that we will share in His inheritance? A person doesn't become adopted by trying to work their way into the family, right? They don't send out petitions to different families and say, adopt me. The only way we can get in is by God calling us in. It's on the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And so on that relationship, when we put our faith, this is how we know we're adopted, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Because those who trust in Christ in faith are adopted as sons. Chapter 3, verse 26. They're adopted. God automatically does that. And so what God wants from you, God wants for you, is for you to sense His love. I often tell my children that I love them. And I often say, no one on this earth loves you more than your mom and I love you. And occasionally, one of them will respond, I love you too. When God affirms His love for you, when God tells you that He loves you through the preaching of His Word, or through a monetary or a gift, some sort of possession, when God convinces of His love to you by helping you to stand up in the midst of a dark, deep, hard trial, when God convinces His love of you through your Bible reading or through a spiritual encouragement of another believer, and this is how He's going to do it. You're not going to hear an audible voice from the Spirit saying, Hey, God loves you. You're going to hear it as God presents His Word to you. And as He does that, and you sense that love that He has for you, you ought to respond like a good child and say, Father, I love you too. He says, You, my child, no one on the earth or in all the universe loves you more than I do. God says that to you as He convinces you in these ways. And your response ought to be, my response ought to be, I love you too, Father. So the first benefit of adoption is that we have assurance of God's love. The second benefit is found in verse 7. And that is that we receive a full inheritance. We receive a full inheritance. And this verse really is a summary of what's taken place in chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. Therefore, verse 7 reads, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Timothy George, a commentator on this passage, gives a good summary of this past chapter. Chapter 3, verse 6 through chapter 4, verse 6. And he says this verse here helps us to see our relationship to God through Jesus Christ. He says, God planned from all eternity to redeem His people and who in the fullness of time sent His Son. Christ became fully human, suffered under the curse of the law, and, verse 6, the Holy Spirit affects forgiveness 
and a new relationship with God as our Father. Therefore, here's the blessing. Here's the full inheritance that we receive. We're no longer a slave, but a son. We're no longer subjected to the elemental things, the elementary spirits or elementary teachings. We're no longer a minor heir who is still an infant son and not. we don't have the full rights of the inheritance. We're no longer... Is our relationship with God determined by our rank, our role, our race? No longer are we under a harsh tutor. No longer are we imprisoned by sin. No longer are we under the curse of the law. No. The promise given to Abraham and fulfilled through Abraham's prophetic ultimate seed, Jesus Christ, has now been extended to all of us through faith in Him so that we can cry out to our Father with the Spirit. Abba, Father. So this blessing of adoption is the best thing that can happen to you. And it all comes through your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just give you two points of application in closing. Number one, since you are adopted by God, that means that you bear God's name. Since you are adopted by God, you bear God's name. I love the stories that go along with the families of the Olympic champions. You see these families in the crowd. And some of the families have sacri- sacrificed a great deal of luxury to get their child trained for these events. Or they have to, to, to just simply take them to and from everywhere they have to go. It's, it's, it's a long, grueling struggle to get them to a place of success in the Olympics. And when the race is finally there... And the competition finally comes to an end. They award the medals. And that parent's child is standing on the podium. There's a great deal of emotion that goes along with it for the parents, isn't it? And that's because in a family, when one member of the family is honored, the whole family is honored. That's why you have all these interviews of Michael Phelps' family. Right? And, and all these other great athletes that you see their family and you see all these interviews and you want to find out more about them because when one member is honored, all of them are honored. But think of the other extreme. These guys who shoot up a movie theater or an elementary building or a post office or a college or a mall. Do we want to really hear from their family? And does the family really want to be heard? I mean, they, they, don't, they just want to go into hiding, right? Because when one member of the family does something shameful, the whole family is shamed. So here's the point. Since you are adopted by God, you bear God's name. And that means how you live matters as a Christian. Because you bear God's name. Do you think there's any significance to your personal spiritual walk? Does it really matter in the big scheme of things whether you live a righteous, a holy life like God commands you to do? Does it really matter? Does it really matter if you're unholy or not? And I would submit to you that you have been adopted into God's family and therefore you've taken on God's family name. 
So you are called God's child. You think He cares how you live since you belong to Him and He's put His mark on you. Does He care? There's a great privilege of being adopted into God's family. But with great privilege comes great what? Responsibility. If you've been called into the family of God, you have a responsibility to act like one of His family members. Second point is this. It is an amazing privilege to be called children of God. It is an amazing privilege. The best, I've said. The best thing that could ever happen to you is to be called a child of God. You see, God was under no obligation to adopt you into His family. And when we recognize that we deserved damnation, and God pulled us out of that and said, not only will you not be condemned, but you're going to join my family and sit at my table and enjoy all the blessings of being called my son, the inheritance. When we realize that, and we should shout with John in his epistle, see what love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Called the children of God. There's nothing greater than being adopted into God's family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your word and how it helps to expose our improper thinking, our complacency, our apathy when it comes to being a part of your family. We think it's so inconsequential how we live. We don't recognize the full weight of what You've done until we see passages like this that just open up our eyes, help illumine us to see what a great privilege it is to be a part of Your family. Thank You for the Spirit that resides in us. It helps to shape us as we look into the Word. helps to shape us to be like a real member of Your family, like Jesus. Thankful that we are called... And Romans co-heirs with Jesus Christ. It's just simply amazing that we would sit alongside of Him and enjoy all the blessings that He enjoys. For what? What did we do? We were living in unrighteousness. We hated You. We loved our sin. And for some reason, You adopted us. And You gave us all the joy that comes with being a part of Your family. And we don't have to wait for all that joy till the next life. We can experience it now. What a great way to live life. Help us to regularly be reminded of our great relationship that we have being a part of Your family. And help us to be responsible with bearing Your name. We don't want to bring shame to Your name or to the, to the name of Your people. We want to bring honor to Your name as You deserve. You are the King. We are Your servants. We deserve nothing more than Your just condemnation. But for some reason, You've chosen us to be a part of Your family. And for that, we are amazed with John 
when we see the great love that You bestowed upon us. Lord, may You remind those who are struggling with their own walk. May You remind them of the love that You have for them. May You remind each of us through Your Word to live holy lives and not to take not to take this life lightly, but to live soberly and righteously in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearance of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray it in His name. Amen.